Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In Podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving In. Hello, Louise. Hello. Hello, lovely readers. We're back. We're back. It's so fun to be back. I feel as though we've had such a nice break over summer. It's been a nice long break and we're raring to go talking about books. We sure are. Uh, We've had a short lockdown here in Perth and we all wore masks for a week or two weeks. Uh, For the first time in this whole pandemic, Perth people wore masks and the novelty wore off for me after about 15 minutes. (laughs) And everybody complained (laughs) until they thought a little bit deeply about what everyone else around the world has been going through. Yeah, absolutely. I just don't know how people do it because you're re-breathing your CO2. I I just don't know how people Mm. do it anyway. So other than those minor dramas, I read a lot of books including some of the books that you talked about in the podcast Ah, last year, Lou, which was so fantastic because there were so many books that Although we read a lot of the same books, there are some that you've read that I haven't read and they sort of had stacked up in my Mm. house. So I uh, read three or four over December and uh, I'll do an Instagram post of those books because they were all great. I loved them and I agreed with your review of them all. I thought they were all really good. So, And it's funny, I don't think I will ever catch up. We'll never catch up. I mean, obviously not with you because... (laughs) You read far more than I do, but I don't think I'll ever catch up never. with all those books I want to read. We will yeah. never. And you yeah. have to just resign yourself. Yeah. It's just a pot that keeps, yeah. uh, keeps, yeah. keeps going. And new, new envelopes keep arriving yes. from publishers and things, which yes. is so lovely. Yeah. So we're going to have a new segment this year yes. where we're going to talk just at the beginning briefly about a book that we've just finished, mm. what, one that we've sort of just recently read. So did you want to start, Lou? Have you, have yeah, you got one that you've uh, recently um, finished that you want to tell us I've about? I've just finished Luckies by Andrew Pipos, which was one of those books that was published late last year that I, you know, was desperate to read and, and never got around to. So it's pretty impressive for a debut. And actually I laugh as I say that because we say that a lot. There are so many debut authors. Who are really impressive yeah and I don't I don't know I mean what do we expect with a debut yeah. of yeah. course it's going yeah. to be yeah because they've poured so much into True. that first book anyway I'm, I can highly recommend this book I it's, love the cover it of is, it. it's gorgeous isn't it it's um mm. anyway I'll explain a little bit about that the the title luckies refers to the central character in the book who is lucky Malios, who is a Chicago-born Greek man who comes to Australia in the 1950s. Um, He's been in Australia previously during the war um, and he gets up to a few exploits as a US soldier, which I won't spoil. And he decides after the war is over he's going to come back to Australia. There may be a lady that he is, Uh is returning to. And through circumstances that I won't spoil, he ends up running a diner, which were very popular in Australia in the 1950s and the 1960s. So the sort of entrepreneurial 
drive and the experience of Greek immigrants in Australia looms very large in this book. And it will resonate with the experience of many Greek communities who left Europe in the 1940s and 50s and they scattered all over the New World, not just in Australia and indeed many European communities that not just those from Greece. And like all post-war immigrants, um, the Greek families were extremely hardworking, you know, driven to succeed and do well in their adopted home. And there were many Greek diners, apparently, that sort of paid homage to the America's 1950s culture, um, you know, with their interiors, there were jukeboxes and booths, and Lucky's Diner was no exception. He and his wife, Valia, who was the daughter of also of a Greek immigrant, they buy a soda fountain and it's given pride of place in the diner. Uh, and Valia says, it's the most beautiful thing we own. Oh. Yeah. And so for a while, Lucky and Valia are happy and they're successful. And then in this book, there's another sort of plot in tandem with Lucky's, and that's the story of Emily Maine. And we meet her first in 2002. She's arrived in Sydney from London, and she's smarting from discovering that her husband is having an affair. And she's left London with no resolution one way or the other about her marriage. She's a journalist but she's now unemployed because she's been made redundant from the independent newspaper, where she'd been a sub-editor. So she always wanted to be a writer, but she was a sub-editor, so she never really got a chance to show her talents. She has a close friend, Liam, whom she was at um, university with. They lived together for a number of years, and he's very encouraging of her writing, and he's been very successful. He's been with The Guardian in Berlin, and he's currently with The New Yorker. And wow. she, so she pitches a story to him, uh, which he accepts. And this story is about Lucky's chain of restaurants. It's really about the rise and demise of the franchise. And it's going to appear in the food section of the New Yorker magazine. So I'm just going to read a little bit here because I always think the author can describe things better than I can, obviously. <laughs> the restaurant franchise that Emily proposed to write about was called Lucky's. In 50 years, the franchise menu barely changed an item. The decor stayed as fixed as a photograph. The awnings were yellow and gold, the floors checkerboard, and the opening hours were long and uniform across the chain. The franchise was named for its founder, Lucky Malios, a Greek-American who'd migrated to Sydney after the war. From America, the restaurants took their diner-style interior, the novelties of the soda fountain and jukebox, the Sunday and milkshake. From Britain, they borrowed the greasy spoon menu of main dishes. From post-war Greece, they obtained most of their staff. Lucky's restaurants also described as cafes, numbered 49 outlets at the peak of the business, but they had fallen out of style by the 1990s. What Emily would frame in her story as the death of the franchise was a shooting in 1994, oh. an incident commonly known as the 3rd of April, in which a gunman killed nine people inside the last Lucky's restaurant in Sydney. And this is all fictional because I... Yes, it's all fictional. So that, it's all I don't fictional. recall that no, no, happening no, no, in no, a no, diner. It's all yeah. fictional. Wow. It's all fictional. So that's the story that Emily is in Sydney to write. But it becomes apparent that the story also represents quite a bit of unfinished business in Emily's life. And the re one of the real reasons she's writing this story is because she has had a small painting of a Lucky's restaurant that she's hidden in her bedroom at home in London since she was seven. 
Ooh. At home in her bedroom hung a small painting of Lucky's Restaurant, a picture made by her late father, copied from a postcard and given to Emily for her seventh birthday. Michael used to say the bright running colours reminded him of melted plastic. It was a portrait of what Emily took to be a typical Lucky's franchise in an Australian country town. A red dirt road, red evening sky and gambling children in green school hats, the shop signage in royal blue. Emily kept the picture in her bedroom, more or less hidden away, because she didn't want to explain its presence to visitors. She didn't want to tell them that her father, Ian Asquith, had killed himself when she was seven years old. Oh, gosh. So, wow. There's a, you know, she, there's a huge drive for Emily to find out more about Lucky's oh. and to see what, if any, connection her father may have had to these restaurants. Because it's very particular. Yeah, yeah. So the book switches back and forth between the war years when Lucky is first in Australia as an American soldier, the characters he meets, um, that's when he first meets his wife, Valia. Her father, Achilles, has a Greek diner, Cafe Achilleon, and that's sort of the inspiration for the chain that, that Lucky later establishes. Achilles, or, or Mad Achilles, as some of his customers refer to him, <laughs> he's a very strongly drawn character. He's an angry old man. Um, he's got very traditional, violent, masculine um, attitudes. So I suppose simplistically, he represents to an extent that first generation that would have arrived in new world countries. Speaking very little or yeah, no English. And not as, not assimilated at all. Yeah. Whereas Lucky, again, it's, this is quite a simplistic interpretation, but he kind of represents the younger generation. The next, yeah. yeah, very aspirational and hopeful of achieving, a, you know, a great deal. So before she arrives in Sydney, Emily's contacted Lucky. Um, this is eight years after the shooting. He's a, now a much older man. He seems very open. He, he seems almost excited at the prospect of the story being published. And Even when, though it's got a negative slant, yeah, which is well, the end of his business. Yeah, it's, it's, it's in very interesting because when she meets him, he, he's very keen to talk but very much on his terms. Right. And, and he seems to be holding back on her. And that kind of presses a button for Emily because her mother has been holding back on her in right. relation to her father for Ooh, many years. I'm intrigued by this yeah. story, Lou. And so Emily starts to follow up leads, you know, people who knew Lucky at the time, you know, at the time of the shooting, the victims, the perpetrator. And then at the same time, Lucky is slowly drip-feeding information and you kind of feel you're being propelled forward and everything's going to come to a head. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's lots of action in this book. I have barely touched the surface. There's a terrible fire. There's a literary fraud. There's a game show. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I highly recommend it. It's fun and it's, yes. And does the ending resolve any, or maybe you don't tell me. Mm. Uh, yeah. No, I won't say. Yeah, no. That, now you've just added another book to my list <laughs> for <Excellent>. next Christmas. <laughs> Yes, exactly. I'll get to that in 18 months' time. Um, what have you just finished? Um, I uh, finally got around to reading the little novella Passing by, oh, yes. by Nella Larson. So it's a classic novella and it's the book that I think inspired The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, which oh, yes. we yes. read and we discussed last year, which was about the twins, one of whom passes herself off as white and sort of leaves the family. This is the novel which I think perhaps first committed the concept of passing to literature. Yeah, I'd, I'd never heard of it. No, yeah. and, and by passing we mean passing oneself off as white when yes. one has some or all African-American heritage. And, and coming from a country outside of America, as 
we do. I mean, I had never come upon this term no, I until I read the Britt Bennett book. Mm. Although, of course, I understand the concept of a mm. person who is not from an Anglo background choosing to not accentuate their non-white heritage. I mean, yes. that's there's very obvious reasons why people um, have done that from time immemorial. And, in fact, in um, Sally Morgan's book, My Place, I can remember that was one of the first times... I read about it in Australia. It wasn't the term passing wasn't used, but in that book, the family, the older members of the family, let people and indeed their own children believe that they were of Indian, Indian. Yes. heritage, rather yes. than saying that they had um, yes. some indigenous heritage. So uh, it's a it's a really interesting concept. And Nella Larson, uh, she lived from 1895 until 1964. Oh, so it's quite old. Yeah, it's okay. it is it does fall into that classic yes. sort of wow older older book. And the writing is of, of that time. Mm. She's described as belonging to the Harlem Renaissance. She was born in the poor part of Chicago. She was a librarian and she was a nurse. Wow. Um, and she was a novelist of only a few books. How accomplished. Yeah. So she had quite an interesting background. So her father was mixed-race Afro-Caribbean from the Danish West Indies. Okay. So he himself, I think he had probably had a white father and a, an Afro-Caribbean mother. And... Nella's mother was a Danish immigrant uh, to America. And it's believed that Nella's father was one of the... There were a lot of white Americans who settled in the Danish West Indies in the mid-1840s, and it was at a time when the mixing of whites and Caribbeans was much more fluid, mm. say, than in the slave states mm. of America. I don't think it was as frowned mm. upon and it just happened and there wasn't the same stigma attached mm. to it and certainly not the same stigma attached to children born from those relationships. Nella's father died when she was very, very young and then her mother married another Danish immigrant and had a child with him. So Nella was the only darker-skinned member of that family unit and they experienced a lot of racial discrimination because yeah. of her. Oh, okay. And w when you look at a picture of her... To me, she looks a little bit like Meghan Markle. Oh, okay. If you can yes. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. A, a very attractive young lady. So this book was published in 1929. It's only 114 pages, but it packs a lot into the story. So as with The Vanishing Half, it tells the story of two women who have African-American heritage and Caucasian heritage, yeah. one of whom, Claire, passes as white. Mm. And the other, Irene, who doesn't. And the story is really told from Irene's um, point of view. So the two women in this story are not sisters and they're not even related. And they, in fact, look quite different. I think Claire can more easily pass as white, although Irene certainly is mistaken for white at one sort of crucial mm. point in the story. So the two women were friends as small children and then through circumstances separated and had not seen or heard from each other in many, many years. And then they run into each other in a, an outside tea shop purely by coincidence. And they're both adults, they've got husbands and they're both mothers. Irene is living in Harlem with her black husband and her two sons. Her husband's a doctor she has a maid, she has a lovely house, and her life seems happy enough from mm. the outside. But, of course, there's more going on in that marriage yeah, okay. than meets the eye, and it's really beautifully done the way Nella Larson sort of introduces the little cracks 
and, and things that are going on. And then there's Claire, who's living as a white woman, married to a man who openly hates blacks and makes casual racial slurs oh. at every opportunity. And he has no idea that not only does his wife have black heritage, but, of course, so too does their daughter. Why did she marry him? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, good question. So after Irene and Claire run into one another, Claire, who obviously feels a sense of disconnection from mm. her childhood and her roots, is very, very keen on reconnecting with mm. Irene and reconnecting with her community. And Irene's instinct is that she doesn't want to have anything to do with her. She's got her own life and she just doesn't want to have a bar of it. But Claire is very persuasive mm. and Claire is drawn in such a clever way that the reader instantly knows what, what Claire is like and what Claire's yeah. true character is. So Claire invites Irene, come over to my home and we'll reconnect and we'll talk about the past, blah, blah, blah. Mm. So Irene can't get out of it, so she turns up and Claire has invited another woman over who is also passing for white. And they're having their afternoon tea and then Claire's husband comes home and he makes immediately makes casual racial slurs about blacks, makes a joke about how his wife is starting to look as dark as the N-word. Um, and he and he does use the, the N word is used uh, a couple of times, but he has no idea. He just thinks that she's got very tanned skin, and it puts these two women in this invidious position yes. because they then have to keep the secret. And so it gets very. And complex. have they just discussed it as women? Have they discussed? Yeah, it's okay. It's, it's, open, it's, it's open for them. Sort of just something that everybody knows about. It's obviously commonplace. Okay. Everybody's on the same page about it. They all yes. know what she's done. They, yes. They've all got their own opinions about it and yes. whether she should have or shouldn't have and how hard it is to keep the secret and the cost of what that. What did she imagine was going to happen yeah. at her yeah. home? Yeah. Well, I think Freud would have a field day with this yes. because... Well, she, a, she married him <laughs> yeah. and now she's... Well, yeah, she's, it's almost <laughs> like she's self sabotage. Yes, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. So I'm not going to say any more about the plot because... That's the beauty of the story, and it's such a little little book. It's so good. It has some really good twists and turns. I did see, I think, all of them coming, and I think that's the point: is that I, I don't think Nella Larson wanted to manipulate the reader. No, no. It's designed so that the reader can see things that the characters cannot. Yes, yes. I think authors make a choice, which about is that. good because it means that. Yeah, we assess the the sort of the the, the morals and the ethics of the situation. Yeah, that we it know. makes you think about it, and you can yeah. see what's coming. Yeah. And, and it's really well done. Yeah, really, really well done. I might well actually done. nab that yeah, one before you leave yeah, today. <laughs> it's so good. I absolutely loved it. I thought it was very beautifully written, and for a classic, even though it is written in sort of nineteen whatever it is twenty nine nineteen twenty nine language, it's not overly flowery it's very accessible her dialogue is excellent and she's really observant really really good mm, and such fantastic. an easy quick read mm. yeah loved it what did you read over the break <laughs> yes well it was hard to choose I have to say I'm sure it's the same for you as well I found yeah. it quite hard to choose what I should talk about and I sort of I'm going to a bit of a throwback, actually, because I picked up Louis de Bernier's most recent book, The Autumn of the Ace. Right. Uh, and I sort of haven't read any of his books for quite a number of years. Me I mean, either. I read some of his earlier ones 
and then I've, I've sort of taken a sort of a bit of a break and they haven't been on my horizon at all. So I picked this up and, and started reading it and quickly became aware that it's the third in a trilogy. And, of course, the other two I hadn't read. So I decided that I would read all three and I'm glad that I did. So the three books are The Dust That Falls From Dreams, which I have to say is, is, the, is the first and it's the absolute standout. The second one is So Much Life Left Over and then this one is The Autumn of the Ace. So uh, did you go back and start with the I first did. one? I did. You've I, got to I, read that, all, I read all three. Well, look, it's interesting because I think that you can read them separately. Okay. They do stand alone but almost not really. I honestly think this is a, you, you yep. want. I think you'd read the first, and then you wouldn't need to necessarily read two and three. But otherwise, you yep. need to read it's them. It's so much better it to is, read. It really is, and that's Lovers, because yeah. they are this sort of sweeping family saga oh, well. across sort of three generations, and the, the books deal with so many topics um, seriously: sort of world wars, their impact upon the peacetime population, love and death sort of issues of class, race, religion. There's also a real lightness at times. You know, he, he writes with such warmth and humour. I'd sort of forgotten how much I enjoyed mm. his writing. Although I will reference a couple of the books, I'm going to just talk about them as one big story because I think that's sort of easier. The first book, The Dust That Falls From Dreams, opens in 1902. Queen Victoria has died uh, and her son King Edward is now on the throne. And in Kent, Mr and Mrs Hamilton McCosh uh, are holding a coronation party. And it's sort of like a lavish high tea in their garden, sort of attended by neighbours and friends. And the, the McCoshes have four daughters. Rosie is the eldest at 12 and her sisters Christabel, Otiel and Sophie. Uh, and their father, Hamilton McCosh, is sort of, he's sort of a, you never really know, he's, he's a Scottish businessman, but he's also a bit of an inventor uh, and he's obviously up to schemes and deals and uh, he's a really lovely, kind man, you know, huge integrity. He's very generous to others. He's always losing his fortune and then getting, and then, you know, making it again. And they live in a grand house in a grand street with lots of servants. And Mrs McCosh, on the other hand, is very status conscious and she's a snob. And I'll say a little bit more about her in a minute. But there's this sort of enormous dose of eccentricity with this family and there's a real Mitford feel to it. Oh. It's got that real kind of uh, Mitford feel to it. The other families in the book that are central to all three books and from the same neighbourhood are the Pitts and the Pendennises. There's four Pitt boys. Two of them we, we don't have anything to do with. They've grown up and they later die in the war. Well, they actually die in South Africa, in a war in South Africa. Um, the younger two, Daniel and Archie, live uh, in the neighbourhood with their French mother and their British naval officer father. And they're sort of great parents. They encourage their two boys, Daniel and Archie, to get up to all manner of sort of, you know, scrapes and uh, they're, they're, they're very liberal parents. And then the Pendennises are an American family from Baltimore and they've got three sons, Ashbridge, Sydney, and Albert. So the coronation party is just one chapter, but it's, oh, I don't know, it's so evocative of this very innocent time in Britain before the nightmare of World War One and World War Two. These nine children call themselves the Pals. Oh. Again, very sort of yeah. esque They spend all the summers that follow playing tennis, you know, messing around, and they, they remain inextricably linked throughout the three books. And this is their story and to a lesser extent their parents and their children uh, and grandchildren. And it sort of spans from the coronation to 1988 when there's one pal left. 
Oh, how um, wonderful. But mostly it's the story of two of the pals, Rosie and Daniel. So the first book jumps very quickly uh, 12 years to 1914. Oh. There's a new king. Uh, the pals are all grown up. The boys are enlisted and the girls are trying to find something useful to do. Rosie becomes engaged to one of the pals who is her childhood sweetheart, who is Ashbridge Pendennis, just before he leaves uh, for war. And in a very short time, she becomes a widow. Ah. Oh. Uh, he, he dies very early on. But, you know, the war is where, and of course from his previous books as well, where Debenia's writing really comes into its own. So he kind of moves from this period of childhood innocence, sort of the lightness, their charmed life of the bourgeoisie into these sort of very serious sort of granular descriptions of war. He doesn't spare, spare us anything, the deaths, the, the battlefields, the horror for the soldiers in the trenches, you know, the corpses. It, it's just, he's real, it's, it, he's just extraordinary writer of war. Yeah. Um, and also the way he captures the grief faced by the families back in England, um, you know, obviously parents whose lives have changed forever. Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned Mrs. McCosh before. She's not a sympathetic character, um, but uh, Debenia permits her a little bit of humanity. In 1916, <laughs> she goes to visit her best friend, Myrtle. They were friends from school. Uh, she goes to Folkestone to visit Myrtle and we sort of have this glimpse of this sort of girlish, more relaxed, more human Mrs. McCosh. And she's on a shopping <laughs> expedition with Myrtle and they go in different directions and Myrtle is in a shop that's bombed. So you have this lightness <gasps> and then suddenly there's this incident and Mrs. McCosh is beside herself and she rushes to find a friend. She can only find bits of her, bits that she thinks is her. Honestly, it's, it's just extraordinary. And then, I'm sorry to say, I should give a bit of a trigger warning here for this, she's shocked to find the head of a little girl. Oh, God. So you can see how he has this, you know, you... It's sort of this lightness of their girly yeah, friendship yeah. and then this sobering And then horror. the reality of yeah. how bad yeah. humanity can be. And, and Mrs McCosh is never really the same again. There are some moments of sheer delight around this character. One of the things she does, you know, in her eccentricity is she sends regular letters to the king <laughs> um, and she's genuinely and seriously asking him to intervene in something that's bothering her <laughs> in wartime or peacetime. <laughs> And, you know, most people would contact their local alderman <laughs> or their parish council. But no, no, she thinks I will write directly to the king. And then this always, and there's lots of letters throughout all of these books because <gasps> a lot of the pals are writing to each other. They're in different places. And, you know, so there's lots of letters, which is a rather lovely way to break the books up. But she always receives these sort of obsequious <laughs> overly polite public servant writes back to her <laughs> saying, you know, always remarking how pleased the king was to hear from her again. Um, again. Uh, but then always, you know, declining to intervene on, on her behalf. And they are, it, it, this is where his writing sings. Yeah. They are just delightful. Yeah. And then there's this lovely thing, I think in, maybe it's actually in the third book, in the Autumn of the Ace, after Mrs. McCosh has died, one of the family members is corresponding with a civil servant about something else and he remembers that his father had served the king and always received letters from this eccentric old lady in Kent. Oh, so, so the circle is, wow. it is it's, and it's, it's really a sort of a delightful thread. Yes, yes. So throughout all three books, the, you, we really notice the shift in the politics of class and gender. Yeah. Obviously, you know, all, the, all of the women in the books, they're servants 
who feature in their own sort of vignettes in their own relationships they experience new freedoms obviously when the men are at war women generally experience more freedoms and of course when the men come back they're reluctant to give up those freedoms and and then also all the new frontiers that are opening um, mm. up as well so so much life left over which is the second book starts when the great war is over daniel pitt returns he's been a celebrated flying ace and he after many many attempts he finally persuades rosie to marry him He's been in love with her forever since he was a child, as actually has his brother Archie oh. as well. Um, and they move to Salon, where he manages a tea plantation and they have their first child, but it was never going to work. Um, mm. She, it's sort of that odd period between World War I and mm. World War II, which is odd, was odd for everyone. Yeah. And so he mirrors that in their relationship. Wow. They're in limbo, the world is in limbo. Yeah. And she never gets over the death of Ashbridge uh, oh. and she's very unsettled. That wasn't my favourite book and I think it's partly because, <laughs> it's awful to say, there wasn't a lot of, well, there was no descriptions of the war. Right. And I think that's when. That's his strength. Yeah, that's yeah. his strength. Um, Interesting. So that, I didn't enjoy that one as much. And then the final one, The Autumn of the Ace, that begins in 1945 as World War Two ends. So Daniel has been away in World War Two, And he's the ace of fighter pilot. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he's doing a slightly different job in World War Two because he's so much older. He's actually flying secret sorties into France. Mm. He's, remember, his mother was French, right. so he is fluent speaker. He's tortured by the Gestapo and he ret he's retur obviously returns in, in 1945. He's survived, you know, but he he's it's like he's not built for domestic peacetime life yeah, yeah. which a lot he, of people found yeah. and and well they really found their straps yes. in war yes. uh, and uh he finds they were just lost afterwards yeah and then and it's very much so for daniel and and his family life is so dysfunctional um you know he had a close relationship with his daughter who's his firstborn but his second born um rosie is trying very hard to keep them apart. Uh, so it's very sad. And in the end, he decides to leave England for Canada. It's a really, really sad book. I, I won't talk about what happens in the end, but you just get this sense between Daniel and Rosie of so much that's left unsaid, so much pain and wasted time. Yeah. Uh, but I should flag that the autumn of the ace Daniel is in his 80s at the end, so when he dies. So there's a lot of his life in that book. Yeah. And, uh, well, so it's sort of a capture of life, that whole arc of their yeah. life from, yeah. that, from that, before that the period. war till Absolutely. after the Coronation wow. to the 80s, yeah, yeah. which is an extraordinary mm. span. And so much change yeah. in that And look, time. there's all the other sisters and all of their relationships mm. and all of those characters and uh, relationships they have with friends. It, it's... It, I mean, I, I could mm. talk about them all day. I've really just focused on, Sounds on those wonderful, characters. Lou. So, yeah, I can recommend them, um, particularly the first one, The Dust That Falls From Dreams. Yeah, that sounds... It sounds like it would be a good one to do on audiobook as well. Yes, yes, yeah. I, I think that's Just right, to actually. get into the, the whole arc of the, yeah. the film. Yeah, you could do the three of them. Mm. And, yeah. mm. That sounds fantastic. What about you? What have uh, you been reading over so the summer? So one of the ones I read fairly early on in the break was Trio by William Boyd. Oh, yes. Yes. I'm a massive William Boyd fan and I've read, well, I think I've read quite a few of his books, but when I look at his list in the front of this, I've really only read about half of them and, and they're all the sort of the more recent ones. So there's, there's a four or five of his very early novels that I've 
haven't read, so mm. which is fantastic. He also wrote short story collections and several plays and a non-fiction book. So there's still more there, which is great. Great to have more things to go back to. So he was born in 1952 in Ghana right. to Scottish parents. And, of course, Ghana will come up in our, the next book we're going to talk yes, about. Yes, it will. Uh, which is funny how there's always these funny connections with the books you read. William Boyd's father was a doctor and he practised um, tropical medicine, hence living in Ghana. Mm. And uh, one of the schools, this is just an interesting little side bit, was hit that one of the schools that he attended was... Gordonstown. Oh, yes. Where Prince Charles was sent mm. at one point. I think he's a bit, quite a bit younger than Prince Charles, but I thought, oh, goodness. And I, having watched The Crown, you can sort of picture. Uh, yes, how sort of cold that, and yeah. grim Gordonstown is, yes. How, how character building that mm. would have been. So this book trio is set in... 1968 mm. in Britain, which was the year of the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy, and the Vietnam War was underway. Mm. So it's quite a pivotal period in, in world history. Most of the books set in Brighton on a film set, and the trio in the title are sort of the three main characters, and the book rotates through each of the three, all of whom are living secret lives. Three main characters in the film or three main characters in the book? In the book. Okay, yeah. But they are also in the film. Yes, okay. (laughs) So it's a film within a book. Yes. Sort of. Yeah. So uh, there's a woman writer named Elfrida and she is a serious alcoholic Mm. and she decants her vodka into bottles of Sarsen's white vinegar and uh, keeps them in the the pantry. As you do. Yeah. (laughs) And she starts early in the morning putting it into her orange juice and she's serious problems. Her husband is working on the film. I think he's the, one of the producers and their marriage is a complete sham mm. and they both know it. Mm. Um, and she's been brought down to, to Brighton and she's living in a house there with him, but he's he's hardly ever around. And why on earth she is hiding her alcoholism is a complete mystery to me because her husband's hardly ever home and he could yes. not care less. Yes. <laughs> so maybe she's hiding it from herself. No, she's not even hiding it from herself. I did, <laughs> okay. think, I did think about that, but no, she's... She's not in denial. Not, even. not in any sort of denial. So it's a bit of a mystery. Yeah. She's had great success with her first novel. She was compared to Virginia Woolf. She's been called the new Virginia Woolf, which she finds really irritating. And she doesn't think that oh. her writing bears any resemblance to I'd Virginia Woolf's writing. I'd take it. I'd be very And, of course, happy. publicly you have to, don't yes. you? I mean, yes. But underneath she's not happy. And she's now suffering terrible writer's block. I imagine this is a very common thing where a writer has written one fabulous mm. book and then they they just can't come up with the next book. Mm. And it's quite amusing because she keeps writing new opening paragraphs for her next book, but that's all she ever writes. So throughout the book there are just these endless iterations of the same first paragraph <laughs> and she just never gets any further. <laughs> it's really quite funny. And to me, they all were all the same. Just a, you know, she just moved things around a bit, and to me, they were all quite fine. I yes, mean, move on. Yeah, yeah just, <laughs> just just do that and keep moving. But no, she just keeps going on and on, and she's she's become obsessed with Virginia Woolf and Virginia Woolf's Last Day. Okay, and this new book that she's purportedly going to write is based on Virginia Woolf's last day where she... And someone has told Elfrida at at a dinner party that Virginia Woolf put stones in her pocket when she went into the river. And I don't think back 
back then, this was common knowledge. Okay. And so she feels like she's in possession of this sort of secret knowledge about Virginia Woolf's last day and her intentions. And Funny that she chooses to write yeah, about Virginia the per- Woolf. The one when, person she's... Yes, yeah. when she's irritated <laughs> yeah, by the fact yeah, yeah. people think that she writes Yeah, there's Virginia a lot Wolf. of hypocrisy. She's got yeah. a, quite a few problems, yeah, this woman. <laughs> she certainly does. She's a very troubled lady. Uh, and not the least of which is her philandering husband, I might add, who's mm. he's a, just a shocker. Reggie, he's just awful. Mm. Then the second person in the trio is a man named Talbot and he also has a sham marriage, although his wife doesn't seem to know it. Mm. And he's one of the producers of the movie and he's just constantly dealing with problems in making the film, which sort of made me realise that being a producer, it's just endless problem Mm. solving. Mm. People won't do what they're told, things yeah. don't turn up, people break their contract. It's just, and he just literally moves from one problem mopping to the next. Up, yeah, just up mopping up, up problems, solving problems. He is secretly gay uh, and he's living a bit of a double life. Mm. And I think this is the year from memory where homosexuality became not a crime anymore. Oh, okay. I think. In the UK? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's that pivotal yes. time for him. And I won't go into his secret life, but he has a very interesting secret life that his wife is completely unaware of. And then the third character, the third person in the trio is Annie, and she's a Danish, very beautiful Danish female star of the film. And she has the CIA turning up on set and wanting to talk to her about her ex-husband who seems to have broken out of jail. (laughs) And there's reasons why the CIA are turning up to interview her and are watching her every move. It's a bit like art imitating life, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's sort of having a bit of a thing with her leading man and and there's another man in Paris. She's got Jacques who arrives from Paris unexpectedly and she's got to sort of deal with the leading man, get get him out of her room because Jacques's on his way up in the lift in the hotel. It's, you know, you can And do we ever know, do we ever find out what the movie's about? Yes, you you sort of get bits and pieces about the movie. It's got an incredibly long convoluted title. And it's just sort of the backdrop to the whole novel. And so the novel moves from each character and events take quite a dramatic turn, which Mm. I did not see coming. People that you think are in big trouble and that things are only going to get worse, maybe that isn't what happens. And the ones who you think might be okay, things happen to them that Mm. you wouldn't have predicted. I really enjoyed it. It's not a particularly plotty book. It's Although there is a dramatic ending. More character-driven. It's a bit more character-driven. Yeah. Uh, but his writing is just, oh, it's so good. He just makes writing look easy. Mm. His prose is just wonderful. It's not fluffy or overblown or sort of self-conscious. He makes it appear quite simple, but mm. it's really just very pared back. And his ear for dialogue is just spot on. Mm. So he he's just got these three fantastic characters and then the way they intermingle and what what happens on the film set. So it's a great snapshot of life in 1968 Mm. in Britain, which was a year of great change and also I think the beginning of more social change, quite some quite significant social change. I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Um, Oh, excellent. Excellent. Keep reading him Mm. because he's really great. And then the next uh, book that I thought I would talk about and then coincidentally Yes, it's on my list as well. You read it too, which is rather lovely. This was sent to me by Bloomsbury and it's called His Only Wife Mm. by 
Peace Adzo Midi. It's a beautiful cover, isn't it? Gorgeous cover. And I didn't realise that it was a Reese Witherspoon no, book club No, book. neither did I. Yeah. So I picked it up because I'm really always keen to read own voices, yes. writers, wherever I can. And Peace Adzo Midi is a Ghanaian writer. She's really interesting. She's got a PhD in public and international affairs from the University of Pittsburgh. And she was born in Liberia. And I think it's a great little book. It starts off, it's got the most catchy beginning. Mm. The opening sentence is, Elikem married me in absentia. He did not come to our Mm. wedding. Yeah. And I think that first line kept me interested in the story until the very end. It's just such a compelling and mystifying beginning. Especially for me as an Australian woman, you know, I just find that. And I know that people have been married in absentia many, many times. Lots of immigrants to Australia used to be married Mm. in absentia. Italian immigrants Mm. and Greek immigrants, Mm. often that was done. And that's the traditional, but this was a traditional in absentia marriage. It's not the legal marriage, is it? It's the traditional. I mean, it still has the same weight in, in Africa. Yes, but it's, it's, a, it's the it's, traditional it's, marriage, yes, isn't it? Yes, it's not yeah. in a church because yes. that does come up later on. Yes. So that whole wedding was just fascinating, mm. all the traditions and the gifts and the mm. food. And, and the brother standing in y- for... Yes, mm. he's, he's her toga. Mm. So the, the main character is Afi Teppel. And she's a young woman living in Ghana with her widowed mother and her life prospects are not great at all. No. Her father has died. Uh, there's not a lot of money. She's a seamstress and she and her mother have had to rely on a very wealthy lady in their community who's Auntie Faustina Gagno to help them out mm. once the father died. And she's helped them out with accommodation and employment and really kept them going when their own family did not. Mm. And then an offer is extended by Auntie Faustina for Afi to marry her wealthy son, Elikem Gagno. And he's the eldest son as well. He's her eldest son. He's vastly wealthy. And it's a man that Afi barely knows and he's several years older than her. And the catch is that Elikem is living with another woman who is not Ghanaian and he has a child with that woman. And this woman is not an approved wife by the family. Mm. So the family sort of decide that Afi would make a much better wife for Elikem, Mm. given that she is from Ghana and that she will fall in line with all the Ghanaian traditions. And they sort of decide to push this, this marriage. And Afi's mother and this awful uncle basically push Afi into this union, mm. although she does go along with it. She's, yes. she's happy enough to go along with yes. it because she doesn't have a lot of other options, no. really. No. But she knows from the outset that there's this other woman. She doesn't know any details. She seems mm. to be very in the dark about the details, but she certainly knows that there's this other woman. Well, she's almost wooed, and although she has those reservations, she's kind of wooed into this idea that as soon as she's married to Ellie, or Ellie Cam, or Ellie, yeah. He will, yes. the family sort of almost have a, this confidence yes. that he will yes. be with her. And so she sort of, she, she kind they of persuades all, herself. They all seem to think that he's going to abandon this woman. Yes. And, and yes. come over and yes. live with this awful woman. Yeah, this awful think. woman. Yeah. And even he thinks that. Yes. He agrees to this whole yeah. wedding. Well, I'm not so sure about that. I, I, I think he did, no, he agrees to it. 
But did he ever? I don't want to give too much away. Yeah, that's I'm right. not sure that he did yeah. ever think. I think he thought he could have his cake and eat it Correct. too. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think um, so. But there's certainly a part of him that wants to please his mother and he certainly some interesting things happen mm. along the way. Mm. So I just found that opening you know, this wedding where the brother is standing there and giving her the ring mm. and this Ellie is just too busy on a business trip somewhere else to yeah. be bothered to come yeah. back for this wedding and everybody accepts it and they all live in this denial yeah. that it's all going to be great. Yeah. And I think they're all just seduced by his money. Yes. Because uh, uh, yeah, they wouldn't be doing it otherwise. Yeah. Would they? And he clearly tells people what they want to hear. Yes. Which becomes a pattern. Yes. Of, and clearly becomes a pattern even to the people that we never meet or, yeah. you know, that, that, yeah, that, we don't, true. We, that we don't observe. And it kind of works for him yeah, to it, do that, yes, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely, because he, he's clearly doing exactly what he wants. Yeah. But that, that whole sort of concept of duty to me was sort of kind of the sort of biggest talisman in the whole book for me. I mean, because yeah. she, Afi is, she's bearing the weight of duty and the weight of everyone's expectations. Yeah. So she's got the expectations of her mother, most of all. They're the ones that are weighing Absolutely. on her the heaviest. Absolutely. Um, to make a sort of a suitable marriage and to behave in a way in that marriage that will, you know, honour her mother. Yes. And honour her odious uncle. Yes. And and also get them out of the pickle that yes. they're in financially. Yes. And, and, and then she also has to keep her mother-in-law auntie happy yes um and the rest of ellie's family happy and so and even some of her cousins who are actually her like her girlfriends yes she's sort of keeping up a pretense for it them is, yes because they, they they think this is a wonderful match and yeah and, and so although she has those reservations all of her own feelings are kind of initially Tashed pushed down pushed yeah. down aren't they yeah the character that i thought was fascinating in that sort of whole cultural uh, expectation is the sister yaya Yes. Because, you know, she's living in Accra with lots of money. She appears to be a very independent modern woman and she's very forthright with Afi telling her that everything's going to be okay and you just have to do this and it'll be fine and Ellie will join you. But her own predicament is kind of mm. perilous as well yeah, because, absolutely. you know, what's going to happen to her? She's the spokeswoman for the family, spokeswoman for her mother, but she herself is in a very traditional Setter. Yes. yes. So she's got the trappings of independence. Yes. But really no yes. independence at all. Yeah. Well, quite a few of them are in that position, yes. really, aren't they? Yeah. So I found that the juxtaposition of those two women, Afi, who yes. appears to have no independence, and Yaya, who has appears, appears to. to have lots, quite interesting. Yeah, and there's really not that much difference no. between them at no. all. Yeah. There are so many societal expectations. It's it's such an interesting read for us when mm. we've grown up without any expectation of bigamy. The uncles have multiple wives. Yes. There seems to be a hierarchy of Ellie is going to be first wife because she actually has gone through a ceremony of marriage. Yes. But he hasn't actually married her in a church. So she's she's in this sort of weird limbo land mm. where she's kind of has ascendancy over this other woman mm. because she hasn't even had any sort mm. of ceremony, but she still hasn't had a proper wedding mm. and I, I imagine it's probably not registered by mm. the state. So I, I found that very interesting mm. that there's sort of, and it appeared to me, to be all designed to suit the patriarchy. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, absolutely. There's absolutely yeah. no way any of the women in any of yeah. this are winners and the men can have all different sorts of wives 
and cast them at all different sorts of levels. You can have a woman who you're living with and who you really are the, committed to. You can have a woman you've had a, some sort of ceremony with and there's a religious one where you can really elevate them if yes. you choose to but yes. you don't have to. Which is why so many of the so. other female characters, uh, some of the, the wives of the brothers and girlfriends of the brothers, play the system. Because they kind of say, well, this is what it is. Yes. We're actually not going to change it. No. And we're just going to play the system. Absolutely. Which I, which I found yeah. sort of quite fascinating. Uh, which, of course, you know, for, for Afi, because I guess in some ways it is a coming of age for her, this book. Definitely, isn't it? yes. Because she's know, very young when she marries yeah. him and he's much older. And it's about her finding her voice, yes. really, isn't yes. it? Yes. Without giving anything away. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't think it is the neatest of endings, to be honest. I think it's. She's still left it a little bit uncertain, yeah, hasn't she? Yeah, absolutely. Although I felt that the ending came a little bit too quickly. Yes, I, I did the too, whole, actually. The whole book is sort of this journey that she's going on. And um, then the last bit is, did seem just, a little bit rushed, didn't it? Yes. It was sort of a summary of this yeah. happened, this happened, this happened. Yeah. Yeah. Overall, really, I really, really glad I read it. Yeah, so yeah. am I. I really enjoyed it and I would recommend it. There's <laughs> nothing like reading something written by... The person who lives there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's contemporary. Yeah. It's a contemporary yeah. experience. I was a bit irritated by it. Oh. On the reverse, it says, a crazy rich Asians for West Africa with a healthy splash of feminism. So annoyed me that yeah. they did that. So the, the quotes on the cover, hilarious. I mean, I did not find this book no, hilarious at all. I just thought that was really lazy. I mean, it's from Kirkus Review, that reference to Crazy Rich Cajuns. And I understand that it's a young woman penetrating a sort of a, a family, a very strong family culture. But I just thought that was a really superficial yeah. kind of Yeah, quote it's a, it's a real book. marketing ploy, isn't it? Yes, it definitely. Um, and I imagine that there are people in bookshops who have loved Crazy Rich Cajuns. And so picked the book so up. So they picked this up. Yeah. yeah. And I can sort of see the you know, to the extent that there's a woman marrying someone from her own culture and it's a different culture from the predominant white culture maybe. Yes. Um, um, but that's where the yeah. comparison yeah. probably and, ends. And, you know, a strong mother-in-law. I mean, that's yeah. kind of, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yes, it's definitely a marketing thing. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. But definitely worth a read. Yeah. Definitely worth yeah. a read. I really enjoyed it. So what else have you been diving into, Lou? Over oh, the break? I have been watching... Lots of Netflix, lots of reading lots. You know, it's been a really, Bridgerton. really good... Yes, Bridgerton. <laughs> of Bridgerton. Course. Although I did tell you that m my mother said that she had some friends. <laughs> she won't mind me saying this. She'll, she'll think this is funny. Who fast forward <laughs> to the sex scenes because they can't be bothered in any of the other bits, which I thought was brilliant. I think they're not all alone. These, all these women in their 60s, 70s and 80s are just fast forwarding I've to the sex. I've seen a few memes along that line. <laughs> I just thought that was absolutely <laughs> Brilliant. And I thought, good on you, Mum. I I'm not suggesting she was, but certainly she said some of her friends were, which I thought was brilliant. And, and one thing I have enjoyed um, very much is the serial novel that's been uh, in the Australian newspaper um, every, about every three days. So the Australian is uh, our national broadsheet here in Australia, and every three days over the summer they have published a chapter from a new summer novel. So each short chapter is written by a different Australian writer. 
some are novelists, some are journalists. And there's been no collaboration along the way. They just literally pick up the chapter where the previous one finished. And it's a whodunit. Uh, it's sort of billed as a gonzo murder mystery and it's set on an Australian tropical island and it's called Oh Matilda, Who Bloody Killed Her? And it's a group of actors, a director, producer and a crew and a few others have gathered on this tropical island to make a TV series. And there's pretty much a murder every few days. Oh, right. It's <laughs> all dropping down like flies. Uh, the first one to die is a young actress called Matilda, hence the name of the, uh, of the novel. And I think we're, about, we're just ready to have our final chapter. I know you, you mentioned something about the subscription. Yeah, well, I just decided I wasn't going to read it because you could only read it if you were a subscriber but to the Australian. you can buy the Australian. Australian. You can buy the yeah, newspaper. Yeah, but it just annoyed me because, it, because, well, when it first came out, it's, yes. it's, it's available now for subscribers. Oh, I didn't know But that. you have to wait until. Oh, I didn't so know that. So there was that. a lead time. And so okay. that was the point at which I went, nope, I'm okay. not going to do that. So the hard copy that's in the the, the paper is has come out much later than Well, the, it did the in the digital. beginning. I don't oh, know I what's know happened now because yeah. I then tuned out. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. It's your protest. <laughs> yeah, that was my protest. I have protest. to say that I did not read them every uh, few days. I collected them. Right. Because... <laughs> I wanted to read them as a yeah. a very short. And are they a bit of a dog's breakfast, or is there? They're not, a they're not really. They're quite theme. funny. I mean, some are more standouts than others. Thomas Keneally is about to do the final chapter. Right. He's a very well oh, known, wow. yeah. established Australian author. Uh, his daughter Meg Keneally has done the chapter oh. just before him, which is so he's going to be left with whatever characters are still alive. Yes, yes. <laughs> and maybe they've kept the most skilled author to the end yeah. because he's got to bring it all yeah. bring it all together. I mean, I love the concept. I, I mean, this is very Dickens and the other person who has done this is Alexander McCall Smith yes. copying the Dickens yes. and Trollope did this as well. But, of course, it's the one writer doing it in those instances, not a different writer yes. each time. When you say is it a dog's breakfast, it, it's a bit bitsy at times and they are very, very short Pieces. So, you know, they take up a third of a page of yeah. ha maybe half a page of I the newspaper. I have read a few of them. Yeah, and this, yeah. The, so they're very sort of, I mean, it's it's not literary. No. No, it's, it's, it's very, you know, light and, and yeah, fun. Okay. And, but, but many of them very well written. But I, I just think it's sort of the resurgence of book clubs, the mm, resurgence mm. of books. It's, you know, maybe it's a symptom of lockdown. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's great to see. Yeah. Great to It'll see. be interesting to see whether they publish it as a, as a book. Yeah. Whether they put it together as yeah. a little thing and, oh, oh, yeah, who knows what yeah. they'll decide. Yeah. But um, the other thing I did want to mention, which is sort of a little initiative that we thought oh, yes. that we might yes. have in the next series of episodes, is there's a great new book um, that's been released by writers Georgia Richter and Deborah Hun. Georgia Richter is actually the adult fiction and non-fiction, actually, publisher at Fremantle Press here in Western Australia. And they've written a book, How to Be an Author. And it is jam-packed, filled with tips, right from the beginning of the creative process all the way through to actually getting your book published and becoming, you know, choosing a writer, being to be a writer as a career. It looks all, amazing. All your, you know, your branding, your publication. There's lots of interviews in here with authors. So it kind of inspired us mm. to have a little segment every episode with a tip. Well, we know that there's a massive interest in Absolutely. people wanting to write a book. There's, um, I think you were telling me, Lou, that when there was a talk on the subject of how to get your book published yes. at the Perth Festival, 
it sold out three times over. Yes. The queue went out the door. Yes. They filled the whole yes, auditorium. Yes, and could have filled it and could have filled it again. Many times yeah. over. I mean, I think everybody thinks I've got a story in me. Lots of authors make jokes. That yeah. There are people often say to them, oh, yeah. I've got a story yeah. in me. And it spans so many people. I mean, it's the people who want to be sort of serious literary writers. Yeah. And there's people who want to write their memoirs. Yes. There's a huge interest in historical fiction. Yeah. You know, so... Uh, There's lots of people who want to get an elderly relative and sit them down and record the story. Get the family history. We've yes. got that, you know, with Ancestry.com and all those websites Absolutely. where you can find out what uh, genetic makeup you have and, and who you might be related to. There's a massive interest in, in our past. There's a lot of people who are interested in documenting that. So, yeah, we thought it might be fun to uh, just include, uh, you know, a writing tip that we've found interesting. Yes, We'll certainly use this book and we'll use other um, reference yeah. books as well and we'll perhaps interview a couple of authors yeah. as well yeah. and get and get some of their tips. Yeah. So it's sort of everything from your creative process, your audience, you know, managing your social media, pitching, finding a publisher, all, all manner yeah. of things. And we have an extra copy of this book, The Business of Being a Writer in Australia, to give away. Yes. Um, so... What we'd like you to do, please, if you would like a copy of this book, is to send us a very short few lines on your idea for a book, the book that you really want to write. Yep. And we will pick one and we will send you a copy of this book. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so it's fun to do a giveaway at the yes. start, of, start of a new season. And what have you been diving into, Ginny? Uh I went to see The Dry. I oh, yes. loved The Dry. Yes. I thought that was really faithful to Jane Harper's book. It was so wonderful. I think it's going to do really well overseas. So beautifully cast. Mm. Um, so many great Australian actors. Several Australian actors who were excellent, who I was not that familiar with. Yes. Some some of them a little bit old, more mature actors, and you think, you are a really good actor. Where have you been? I just... Yes. Yeah, possibly all at the Sydney Theatre Company or something, I don't mm. know, but it was really good cast and the cinematography is just fabulous. So, Dingo Noir? Yeah, re really good. Loved it. I've been listening to lots of podcasts. Mm. I've been listening to lots of political yes, podcasts for yes. obvious reasons. So I've been really glued to Pod Save America mm. and uh, Hacks on Tap yes. and The Axe Files. <laughs> and both of those have... Uh, David Axelrod at the microphone, and they've just been so interesting to me with all that's been going on in, in America. And then the other one that, <laughs> that I, I got really stuck into in when we had our little mini lockdown mm. was the You Beauty yes. podcast, which is one of the Mamma Mia podcasts, and they did this thing over summer where they did a short podcast every day on, you know, some sort of beauty product and consequently I've been buying serums <laughs> <laughs> and face creams and all sorts of things that I've never bought before. So that's my, you know, life hack. If you need a nice treat, go and buy a nice serum. There's nothing like the end of a tricky day smearing some gorgeous smelling stuff all over your face. <laughs> And may I say, Virginia, they appear to be working. Dewy, or am I dewy today? You're dewy today. Um, nothing to do with the humidity. Um, you know, it's funny though, in that whole kind of beauty area, do you not find that, you know, you can buy this cream, moisturising cream and this hydration. When the word serum, I just think it's going to work for yeah. some reason. Absolutely. It sounds scientific. Do you think that's what it is? Yeah. Because of all the products. Yeah. 
you know, across the range that you can buy. If it says serum, yeah. I'm in. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what, what is that? And the interesting thing is I was always brought up to believe that it was all a sham yes. and that these all came out of the same big pot. You know, there was <laughs> Nivea and then L'Oreal. people just <laughs> added a bit of perfume in yes. to distinguish theirs yes. and it was all the same stuff. I actually don't believe that anymore. I mm. think... Well, it has changed. The industry's changed there's so much science so much. Yeah. in it all now yeah. and there's hyaluronic acid and niacinamide yeah. and vitamin you c are, and you are an absolute oh my goodness and i think there probably is something to yes. it and there yes. are you know scientists involved in so i'm going to give it a go it's I'm loving this. So I'm much loving fun. this. And I mean, it's a better treat to have at the end of the day than a block of chocolate. Correct. So I um, love that. You're but not you use life hack. Yeah, my life Grab hack. Grab a serum if you want a treat for yourself. And there, you know, the great thing about that Mamma Mia, You Beauty podcast is they have spendies and savies. So you don't actually have to spend no. a fortune because there no. are plenty that are. Quite yes. inexpensive. Yeah. So you can sort of choose. And do they go into point. the science of them? Are they? Well, they're not scientists. No, no, so but no, do they? Not really. No. <laughs> because I've been as much as a lay yeah. person can. Because yes. to be honest, also in that industry, much of beauty creams and treatments is how they make you feel and the smell. Absolutely. Isn't it really? Absolutely. Because as you say, if you spear it all over your face and you feel wonderful, yeah. Yeah. who cares? Yeah. Because it's done its job yeah. in some respect. Absolutely. Because I have no greater expectation than that, really. <laughs> I, I mean, at my core, I'm still a bit cynical. Yes. Although I do, you can sort of tell that there are advances being made. Yes, sure. Which is not surprising. Yeah. Because there's so much money in it. Yeah. Huge industry. <laughs> Huge industry. Well, may I say you're glowing, yeah, thank Virginia. You. Thank you, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been great fun to be yes. back in the uh, Diving In studio again, Lou. Uh, we're going to be back next time with a really fun theme that we are yes, both really looking wait. forward to. Can't wait. We're going to have a few laughs. And we're also going to be announcing which book will be our first book club book for 2021. Mm. And we'll give everyone, you know, plenty of notice to get their hands on that. So we'll be back soon. And thanks very much for listening. Have a great week. Okay, bye. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening. And thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too, at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in.